Ladies, for putting that together for us. That was awesome. If you have your Bibles, uh, I would invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 16 today. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew uh, in front of you. You can grab it, and uh, if you like it, keep it as your own. You're you can. Uh, as you're turning there, I, I want to let you know a little bit about what we're doing in the fall in terms of the sermon series, so you can get ready. Uh, our fall series will be looking at the book of Ephesians. So we're going to spend, and it's going to be a doozy, we're going we're to spend a long time through that book, and we're going to actually look about, they were going through the theme about how identity, reshaping our identity into Christ actually reshaped the city and took over the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a very interesting city. You get to read a lot about it in Acts chapter 17. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend three to four weeks learning about the story of Ephesus, what God did in that city, and then we're going to jump right into the book. And so it's going to be a good series on how our identity shapes everything about what we do, what we believe, and what we act. So it's going to be amazing. I encourage you to go through it uh, and, and just read it on your own as we get ready for the fall coming up. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says this. Uh, guys, I don't know if you can help me get this, this stuff uh, the the projector on that screen, uh, that would help. Uh, so I know where I'm going. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and act according to his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. As children of God, keep in, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life in the day of Christ, that you may be proud that he may not labor in vain. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we want to we, we ask that you would open up your word to us, that you would help explain what this text means to us and share where it applies in our hearts. Help me speak clearly and effectively as we get into the word this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Well, if you're joining us this morning, my, my uh, thing is not working here, uh, remote, oh, there it goes, Nice. Uh, if you're joining us this morning, uh, we have been going through a series called What is, is It Real? And we've been looking at various convictions uh, that we have as a church in our own, by going through our own doctrinal statement. And so last week we took a stab at this one, which talked about the idea that we believe that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is received by faith and obedience and that sanctification is progressive as well as instantaneous, producing daily growth and grace following the experience of the one in the new birth. And so last week, if you remember, just as a recap, we focused on this part. We talked about who the Holy Spirit was, or sorry, is. We talked about how we have him, we have a full access to him at the moment of 
faith. We talked about why we need the Holy Spirit if we have Jesus. And you remember what I said about that is that the Holy Spirit enables us to have access to Jesus on a level that we wouldn't if he was physically walking the earth today. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. And so today we're actually just going to focus on the latter half of that, which is this idea about sanctification. And so what I'm going to talk about today is like if you've ever grown up in church or you've never grown up in church before, and, and you might, this might be the first time that you've heard that word, and you have absolutely no idea what I am talking about when I talk about sanctification. And if that's you, I totally understand. Sometimes we, as Christians, have this vocabulary that we use to describe things about Jesus that don't actually... That that don't actually make it into the modern vernacular. And so people outside church don't really understand what we're talking about. And so if you're wondering what sanctification is, that's totally okay. All that sanctification is, is just a fancy word that Christians use to describe growing in holiness. Okay, That's what it means. Though That's it in plain English. It's, it's a big fancy word to describe growing in holiness. Uh, or a or more lengthy way to say that is that sanctification is the process in which God conforms us more to his character than we originally were at the moment that we decided to believe. Okay? Let, me, let me say that again so you understand, I mean, because it's really important. Sanctification, the idea of growing in holiness, is the process where God shapes your character, your soul, your mind, even your body, to look more like Jesus than the moment that it was when you decided that you were going to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it is, okay? And it is really, really awesome. It is, it's, uh, it's this idea that I am learning to fall more and more in love with Jesus. It's the idea that I am learning to live in a way that pleases God. That I can learn how to fall in love with the God of the universe. It's this, it's this idea that you and I have that you're continually losing yourself more and more and more into the person of Jesus. And anytime you remotely hear about Jesus or the name of a God, it fills you with this sense of wide-eyed wonder and amazement. When God's name is whispered, it makes you like shiver with this excitement. And your response would be this great affection for God that flows from every fiber in your being. It's an idea that you get so obsessed with the person of Jesus and holiness and living for him that you get lost in him. I want to get carried away. I don't know about you, but I want to get carried away into the person and presence and the character of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where or how deep. I want to get lost in the way of truth. I want to fall in love with Jesus, and I want my heart to grow, and I want it to follow him, and I want to become grow in holiness and maturity. That's, the, uh, that's sort of the heartbeat behind sanctification, the process of growing holy. And it happens at the moment of conversion. That's the desire. When, God give, when we give our lives to Jesus, God gives you a new heart. You see, 
you needed a new heart, and that's because nobody, the Bible says that nobody seeks God. So by an act of supernatural grace, God has changed your inner nature. And he has given you a new heart, a new heart that desires to follow him. Listen to what the word of God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning that you trust in Jesus' work on the cross, you are a what? New creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. Okay? So your heart, before you met Jesus, was sick. Disgustingly sick, beyond repair. And so instead of repairing your heart, what he did, does is he actually gives you a new one at the moment of your salvation. And it, and it happens like this. Listen, and it, and it causes us to want to grow in holiness. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who, uh, who practice homosexual relations, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, no swindlers will ever inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Every single uh, adjective on that list right now represents every single one of us in this room. That's what we were to God. We were idolaters. We were drunkards. And, and we practiced evil. But listen to what it says here when Jesus comes into your life. But you were washed. You were what? Sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I hope that you understand the profound mystery of our salvation. Salvation always involves a break with the past. Hear that very clearly. Salvation always involves a break with the past. Whatever you were, whatever your lifestyle was, whatever you thought it was, this is now your lifestyle now. Okay? Listen to... Or, Listen to what John, 1 John 3 verse 9 says to this. No one born of God, so those of us who, do, who claim that we follow Jesus, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, just in case you're wondering, that does not mean that we are perfect. It, 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 means, it does mean that it doesn't mean that we will never sin again. What it means is that when you and I authentically come to the place in our lives where we trust what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me, the result or response is that you desire and said, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm no longer going to do this. It doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes or sin occasionally. It just means that there's a desire in your heart to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Okay? Hear that very clearly because I, I'm speaking at two extremes here. I've met Christians, particularly in Bible college, that said, well, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you 
uh, are following God, you can't sin anymore. And my response is, those guys have never been married. <laughs> okay? Because the moment that you're married, you realize just how broken and selfish you are. And that's extremely true if you have kids. Am I not right? Right? So I'm speaking of that. that. That's not true. But the other side of it, too, is that if you and I claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, then there must be a change. Right? There must be a change. Okay? And that change is supposed to continue throughout our whole lives. We're constantly supposed to mature, become more resistant to sin, more open to God's Holy Spirit. Someone once said, a famous preacher said this, I'm, I, I'm not sure who the, the exact name, but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to quote it nonetheless. He says this, Holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. It evidences itself in the decisions that we make day by day and hour by hour. According to the Bible, we are to make every effort uh, to forget what lies behind and strain to that which goes before us. We are to forget every thought that is contrary to Christ and make it submit to Jesus. We are forget to forget our former passions and press forward into holiness. That's the idea, is that you and I grow in holiness, we grow in a maturity in faith, and that we want to, and that is a continual process that doesn't stop until the day that you die. That over time, you should be coming, becoming more excited about the things of God, more passionate about the things of God, more mature than you were at the day that you, before the day that you became a Christian. All those kinds of things. And you know what I find, though? I find that that is not the truth. I find, and if I'm going to be honest, and I hope this is a place where it can be honest, I find that the longer that I'm a Christian and the longer that we are Christians, the more bored we get with God. Am I not speaking the truth? Church becomes boring. It just becomes another Sunday. You know what I realized this happened to me? It happened a few years ago. Um, I was, uh, I was meeting with a friend who was diagnosed with the terminal cancer. And he was like, Dan, can you pray for me? I, I, you pray that God would do work in my life and, and heal the cancer. And uh, I'm like, sure, I, I guess I'll pray for that. I, so I pray for that. And, the, you know, it's not that a bunch of us pray for that. Well, three, four, five months go by. I can't remember how long. It was a prolonged period of time. And, he, and I, I, I meet up with again, and I go, hey, how did it go? And he said, well, you know what happened? I went, to the, I went, I went for my uh, CT scan again, and they, they looked at the place where the tumor was, and it wasn't there. I was like, you're sure they didn't mix it up? <laughs> no, they didn't mix it up. They, they saw it. It was right there. God healed my cancer. And do you know what my response to that was? Well, that's cool. Where's the Xbox? Like it was just another Tuesday for me. Like it was no big deal. I didn't stop to think about the fact that God had done a miraculous work in this man's life. And the best thing that I could think of was let me play Halo. Halo. 
When did God become so boring to me? When did I let him, when did stuff like that become just just as boring as watching paint dry? When did I become so apathetic? When someone comes to me and and they, they, they give their life to Jesus, and for the first time, that is the work of God, that God is doing a new work, and I'm just like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Or when God speaks to somebody, and, and you know, they're reading their Bible, and the, it comes alive for them, and God is bringing restoration into holiness in their life, and they're talking about how God speaks through the Word to them, and I'm just like, oh, that's kind of cool. Where did I get off getting so bored of Jesus? Sanctification is the idea that I grow in holiness, that I'm getting more, uh, as, as I am becoming more mature in my faith and uh, learning what it is to please God, I'm getting excited about the things of God, and yet I'm becoming more apathetic. Why? Do you know what it was that made me, do you know what the deciding factor was that, that, that gave my life to Jesus? Do you know what it was? I have been around Christians ever since I was like a little kid. I went to church and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I just kind of thought it was boring. Do you know what the deciding factor was for me to say, I'm going to try Jesus. I'm going to give him my life and trust him with it. You know what it was? It was a bunch of teenagers at youth group that were passionate about Jesus. When I was a teenager, it was the one thing that grabbed me that said maybe there's something real was this passion and obsession my, hat, my peers had towards following Jesus and living in holiness. Never before in my entire life had I seen a bunch of teenagers have this infatuation about living in a way that pleases God. When I went to youth, people attended youth group because they wanted to be in love with Jesus. Not for the fun, not for the games, not for the socialization. It was really weird. It was kind of like a revival. And I had been to youth group before. God had been doing some amazing things, and he, I, I started seeing God do some really cool things. That these teenagers said, we don't, only, we don't want to just have a passion for God ourselves. We want to let those in our high school know about Jesus. And so they started praying around their high schools every day during lunch hour. It was a weird time. All the youth groups at then city had, had, had some sort of youth group name with the word fire in it. I don't know if you remember it. Something like <clears throat> wildfire or revolution or something along those tires. I, I remember Canada fire, campus fire, firestorm, anything that communicated passion for God. It was this huge time of unity among the churches the likes of which I have not seen since. And the result of that was that the biggest school district in Vancouver, the Surrey School District, in the year 2003, had either an evangelism group or a prayer group in every single solitary high school in the Lower Mainland. That's what, that was the nail in the coffin for me. The, the clincher for accepting Jesus, that there was something real about it, a people that were passionate and wanted to live holy lives. And then I grew up and realized that not everyone shared that same enthusiasm. At first I thought it was a rare occurrence, but over time I started realizing that people became bitter and apathetic as, as years went by, and eventually I got in the same place. I felt like people forgot their first love. You remember that? Maybe you felt like that. 
Maybe you could resonate with Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, when Jesus himself speaks to the church of Ephesus and says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who do evil. But you have tested those who have called themselves apostles and found that they are not, found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my sake, but this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Sanctification is the idea that you are growing in your maturity and faith and therefore are becoming more excited over time about the things of God. That your faith is vibrant, that it's thriving, that it's growing. Not that it's always easy, not that you're not always going through a time of suffering, but it's, it's, it's alive, it's alive. It's, it's, it's this thing that it's, it's not just, I sign my name on a card and I just get to live my life how I want. It's this growing thing inside of you. So that begs the question, how do you grow in holiness? How do, you, how do I grow closer in my relationship with Jesus? How do I have a more vibrant, thriving, mature relationship in the Lord? How do you attain a stronger relationship with Jesus? How do you, uh, what's the right word? How do you mature in your faith? How do you, how do you act in such a way that conforms your character more to Jesus's than it was at the moment of your salvation? Well, the answer is very simple. Hey, you ready for this? You're going to love this and hate it at the same time. You have to work out. Okay? You got to work out. Let me reread to you Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, what does it say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me explain a little bit about this, just so you're not lost and understand. A little bit of background for you. This passage, what we just read, was written to a church in the city of Philippi, and it's written by a guy named Paul. And at this point, Paul is this man who went all around this, uh, the country of Rome, the nation of Rome, church planting. And he was telling people about Jesus. He said, you need Jesus, and you need Jesus, and you need Jesus. And those Roman gods over there, they're not really gods, and that got people in trouble. That got them in trouble a few times. And you, you're a sinner, and you need a prince, and you're broken, and people didn't like that. So they throwed him in a, j- a jail. Probably about roughly the size of this room with no sanitary options. With about a hundred other people in there. He was in chains. Okay? And he writes this letter. And so while he's there, he writes a few letters to churches. And he writes this one to the church of Philippi. And, it's, and he has a good relationship with them. He's writing to encourage them. There's nothing super like wrong or catastrophic that is going on. In this church, he's just writing to encourage them to maintain the faith. And so what he says in this first verse is, I want you to notice, 
that in this text, Paul is proud about how this group of Christians has been obedient to Jesus. Listen to what it says again. Therefore, my beloved, so now as you have always obeyed. Okay? So he isn't recognizing that they have always obeyed. They have been obedient to Jesus, but what he's doing is he's urging them not to be content with past victories and past workings of God in their life, but to press forward. Rather, they are to demonstrate the great acts of God's obedience to Christ uh, than they have in the past. And they are to do so with fear and trembling, which is a way, way to say that they are to do that with reverence and awe. They are to grow in holiness. They are to work out. Now I know they, they are to work out their salvation. They are to exercise their faith. They are to train in their faith. Now I know that some of you off the bat, really have the alarm bells go off when you hear that kind of language because the very first thing that you think of is that it's, a, I'm, I'm telling you that it is a salvation by works. But that's not what I am saying at all, right? That I don't believe in salvation by works. None of us here at church do. Salvation is a gift. I want you to, I want you to explain, think about it like this. When you go work out, when you go weightlift, you know, I know some of you never weightlift, and some of you have. I know I haven't in a while. But why, why do you weightlift? Any takers? Get strong. Get strong, okay. Well, yeah, you do get strong. But you, you know, I, I was hoping someone was going to say, well, you, get, you weightlift to get muscles, right? You want to look big. Where's my regulation size beach ball? It's about this big around, right? You want to, you want to, okay, that was funny, okay? <laughs> Okay, you work out to get muscles. That's what you go work out for, right? No, you don't work out to get muscles. You already have muscles, or else you'd be dead. When you go work out, you're not working for your muscles, you're working. Out, you're working them out, you're working them as muscles that you were already given by no merit of your own, by the way. That was your mom and dad's doing, okay? In the same way, you're not working for your salvation, you're working out your salvation. Do you understand the difference? That God has given you salvation as gift, and you are to exercise that. He has given you a new heart, which, by the way, is a muscle, right? Heart is a muscle, and you are to exercise that. Okay. When I was in high school, I had a lot of guys around me. A lot of guys wanted to be 200 pounds. I spent last night looking at my yearbook and I tried to scan it. And all the, you're not going to believe this, but all like the, th there's pictures of like the 13, 14, and 15 year olds and they're in the weightlifting class and they're like huge. They have biceps the size of my thigh, right? And they're 13 years old and, and it's crazy. And so when I was 13 and 14, I said, I want to look that big. And I was about 150 pounds, and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to weight lift and bench 200 pounds. It's going to be 200 pounds. I dropped to 120. I was a stick. I was a muscular stick, but I was still a stick, right? I wanted to play football. You know what I realized? Pastor Dan should not play football, right? You know what would happen? It would be gym class. I'd sit there, and, they, and they'd be like, okay, all right. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I, I get the ball, and all they would have to do is go, boom. 
and I'd fly halfway across. It was so light. I didn't realize that eating Big Macs gets you to 200 pounds too. So listen, if you want to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus, you have to work out. You have to train yourself. Listen to what uh, Timothy talks about this. Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths, but what? Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is a value that <clears throat> godliness is a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. Okay? Some of you think that you can mature in faith just by doing nothing, and that's ridiculous. Like you're standing around there and you're just kind of like, okay. Holy Spirit, do your thing, and this mystical force comes on you, and somehow you're more patient with your wife. <laughs> that doesn't work like that. Right? Some of you think that you become more godly if you just read your Bible or listen to sermons. That does not make you more mature in your faith. Now, to be fair, I am always the cheerleader of reading your Bible, okay? If you tell me that you're reading your Bible more, I'm going to say, yeah. Okay? But I want you to listen to what James chapter 1, verse 22 says about this. Be, not doers, be doers of the word and not hearers only, and so deceiving yourselves. Some of us have been deceived into thinking that if I just read my Bible enough, that alone is enough to mature, be mature without actually doing what it tells you to do. Okay. Can I just say something about that? Atheists read the Bible. In fact, there's a whole profession, I don't know if you can do this, called biblical studies. You can make your living off it, and you don't need to be a Christian to do it. There are people that study the Bible day in and day out. Every Greek word, every, every sort of structure of the grammar, everything like that for their entire lives, and yet they have no recollection of faith in Jesus. Okay? It's not only reading the Word, it's doing what it says. You've got to exercise your faith. <clears throat> it is, but going on from there, I, going back to our text this morning, I want to... I want to explain this a little more. So Paul has encouraged the Christians in Philippi, hey guys, you're doing a great job. You've always obeyed. Now I need you to keep obeying, keep working out your faith, your faith with fear and trembling. Work it out. But what he says, but unless the Christians at the time think that that is too hard, they are to remember that God is at work in them in two different ways. And that's what I want to get back to you, is that working out your salvation is a partnership between you and the Lord. Listen to the very first part of Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you. You need to understand when God calls you to train yourself to be godly, and he's telling you to work out your faith, and, and it feels like it's too much for you, it's too hard, you don't have to worry as if it relies on you. Sanctification, or the idea of working out your faith, is a partnership between us and God. 
where God works in you. He has a role to play in making you holy, and you have a role to play to make you holy. So if you want to grow closer to Jesus, if you want to have an understanding about how to grow closer in your faith, how to mature in your faith, it would be helpful to know God's role in that process and your role in that process. And so the scripture goes on and it tells us that God's role in our sanctification is to do two things. Verse 13, it says this, For it is God who works in you both to what? Will and to work. Right? So God does a few things for you. I'm going to lay them out for you here in your salvation. Number one, he creates the desire to follow him. At the moment that you trust God, he gives you a new nature and a new art. And you are set free before God to, uh, uh, to follow him. Before you followed Christ, you were what the Bible called, had a sinful nature or the flesh. And that sinful nature or the flesh is that physical bar- part of you that screams out for comfort and gratification and pleasure and relief and admiration and affirmation. It's this selfish part of you that develops an unrelenting need to focus on yourself, and it strokes your own ego. It goes like this. Feed me, comfort me, treat me, pleasure me. Sounds like a toddler. And if I don't, it reacts like a two-year-old in the supermarket whose mother had just refused him candy. We just experienced that the other day. We took James out to Red Deer, and we were in this checkout aisle, and we were there for him. We were, we were doing something nice for him, and he saw this Spider-Man toy, and he was like, Dad, what's that? It was like, uh, I don't know, it's something with Spider-Man's face on it. And he's like, I want it. And it was like, uh, you don't even know what it is. Oh, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> no, I'm not spending the money. Total meltdown, breakdown, right? The kind where you feel every, every other parent is judging you for how bad of a parent you are, right? Right, at that moment? That's what your sinful nature is like. Right? But when you become new in your faith, God actually transforms your heart. So there's something that goes on that says that before you become faith, uh, become faith in Jesus, you look at a godly lifestyle, you look at all the integrity stuff, you look at being honest, you look about how to be a man of God, and stand up for yourself and, and, and be and be a person that's full of love and joy and peace, and you go, and there's this part of you before Christ that goes, I, I, don't, I don't want that, that's awful, right? But the moment that you become a Christian, the moment that you give your life to Jesus, God's Holy Spirit gives you the desire for that. It's not just that, okay, I have to do this because the Bible tells me to it. You want to do it. There's something that goes inside of you and says, I want to be closer. I want to know the word of God. There's something inside of you that goes, I want to be a man of integrity or a woman of integrity. There's something that says, I want to be humble. There's something that says in your heart, I want to be the best husband I can be or the best wife I can be. There's something that says in your heart, I want to pray. I enjoy praying. There's something that inside that goes in, and that's the Holy Spirit. He gives you the desire to follow God and want to do it. That is what it means when it says he gives you the will. Look at it this way. Let me explain it this way. Let's assume that you're a stay-at-home parent, my mom or dad. And it's your job to maintain the house, look after the kids, 
take out the garbage, paint the walls, all that kind of thing. And you might say, I don't want to do that. How many are in a situation where you're like, I don't really want to do that? Honestly. Okay. Well, I can understand that, but let's say you've just purchased a new home. Let's in fact say it's your dream home. And before you move in, you had to clean the house and maybe paint, and there's a lot of work to do, but you had no difficulty with the motivation because you had a will and a strong desire to do that. You're like, okay, bring me that paint. I'm going to paint this. I'm going to tear down that wall. And I'm, I love moving. Let's get in the house. I hate moving, by the way. But when it's your new house, when it's your dream house, you want to do that. You have no problem doing that. That which you didn't like doing before. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. Is he comes in, he like gives you a new home. A new house. So how God makes you holy is he gives you a desire for it. Number two, he enables you. Verse 13. It is God who gives you the ability to will and to act. In other words, he, not only does he give you the desire to follow him, he gives you the ability to do it. So here's what I'm going to say about this. Is sometimes you and I read the Bible and we're convicted of something that God wants us to do or say or believe or whatever, and we go, I could never do that. Like, I'm not a strong Christian. And that's a lie. Right? Because here's the truth. Philippians tells us that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what I mean to say by that is not that God says that the verse is saying I can put my mind to anything and do it. That's not what it's saying. It's saying whatever God has called you to, you can do. So here's the deal. The next time that you are in a situation where you feel God has called you to do something, and you're, quote, not a strong Christian, pretend that you are. Okay? Ask yourself something like this. If I was a strong Christian, what would a strong Christian do in my situation or my circumstance? And then ask you, make a list. They would do this, they would do this, they would say this, they would go, and then go and do it because the Holy Spirit has given you the ability to be faithful. A few other things that he has done to help you grow in your faith. Number one, number three is that he has given you Jesus as an example. First Peter chapter two, verse 21. It says this, To this you were called, Jesus Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. God gave Jesus to us as an example. So let's say you're being treated badly at work, and you have Jesus, and Jesus, and you're reminded by the Word and by the Holy Spirit about how Jesus was treated in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you use that opportunity to identify what it would have been like for Jesus to go through it. Jesus is your example. Number four, Jesus uses suffering. This might be a hard one for you to hear, but Hebrews 12, verses 8 and 11 says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate true sons and daughters of God. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them for it. Maybe not in the moment, but we do now. How much more should we submit to the Father of the spirits and live? 
They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God's discipline for us is for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. God is not, when you experience suffering in your life, please understand this. God is not punishing you. He's disciplining you. God will allow suffering into our lives in order for us to be shaped by them and to break our reliance on idols, making us hope in him and not in the world. Okay? That's the beauty about discipline. I don't know how many of you know this, but we have this uh, dog that we got. And we have no idea how to take care of a dog. (laughs) But we're trying our best to discipline and train it. Her name's Holly. She's great. And one of the things that she does that we hate is that whenever the dishwasher door is open, she climbs onto the dishwasher. She's a 50-pound dog, okay? And licks all the cutlery, right? And so we kind of do all the things, say, no, Holly, don't do it, and don't do it, don't do it. And the big reason that we're not, we don't want her to do it is because eventually we know that all the cutlery and all the stuff will fall on her and it will hurt. So one day I went upstairs and I forgot to close the dishwasher and there was Holly licking. And all of a sudden I heard this big crash and all the dishes and all the cutlery went everywhere on her and all the things and it hurt her and she suffered. But you know what I realized? She never licked the cutlery again. Yeah. <laughs> Suffering is God's way of training us in holiness. Lastly, he prompts us. Ephesians 4.30 says that God, uh, it is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. And when that context of that passage, what that means is that Christians can be guilty of lying or when Christians can be angry or unforgiving or we can be lazy and not work. And every time that we do that, the Holy Spirit is grieved and he is weeping for us. Hear this. The implication is that in order to sin, you and I have to directly resist the promptings of the Holy Spirit and the warnings of our heart to do it in order to sin. Do you know at the moment you became a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you in every soul of a believer as a seal of your salvation, meaning that the Holy Spirit lives in you, which means that he watches what you watch and he hears what you hear. And that in order to grieve the Holy Spirit and to sin, there are these warning bells that go off once, twice, three, four times that you deliberately have to ignore every time that you and I sin. So what I'm trying to say is that the way that God's Holy Spirit, or the way that God helps us in our, grow in our faith is He prompts us. He says, I need you to focus on love and peace and joy. And every time that we walk in that direction, that's great. But every time that we walk in that direct, the opposite direction, there are these warning bells that go off. And you know what I think that practically works out with? Those are the butterflies that you feel in your stomach when you know that you're working against something that God has been saying in his word. It's this knot. How many of you have felt that? Yeah, you know exactly what I'm saying. You know what that is? That's your conscience, and God using your conscience to say, Hey, dummy! No! No! 
No! Right? How God helps you grow and work out your faith is he prompts you and he leads you. Okay? So that's God's part. That's how God helps, that's his role in making you holy. He creates a desire. He gives you the ability to carry it out. He gives you Jesus as the example. He, he allows suffering into your life to train you, not to punish you, but to train you, and he prompts you. So what's our part? What's the part that we need to work out on? And there is a part, and, and I want to say this very clearly. You and I need to understand there is a responsibility to this. Last year, I was, I was driving a drum heller. I, was, I, was walk, I wasn't driving, I was walking. I realized I was out of breath and I needed to work out. So I was like, who in the church do I know likes to work out? And I automatically thought of Mike. So I phoned him up last year and I said, Mike, can you help me work out? And he's like, sure, Dan, no problem. Let's get up at four in the morning. <laughs> no, I'm not that disciplined. So he's like, okay, well, here's a bunch of P90X stuff. So here, I want you to watch the videos and do the exercises. I'm like, great, let's do it. So I watched the videos. And I watched the videos. And as I watched the videos. But I didn't do the exercises. So he would say, he would phone me up, hey, how did it go this week? Well, I watched the videos. Great. Did you do the exercises? No, I'll do them next week. Don't listen to Pastor Dan when he works out. <laughs> what, what I did about working out, a lot of us do in our faith, is that we, we, we learn a lot, we listen to sermons a lot, we watch a lot, we debate, we go to Bible studies a lot, but we never actually exercise. We never actually do what the Word of God says. And there's two things that, are, that we need to do in our sanctification. And that's number one, we need to yield and we need to do what he says. Listen to Romans 12, uh, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers. I don't know if I have it on the screen. Yes, I do. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. In order to grow in your faith, I'm going to have to tell you to do something that you're not going to like, and that is this, is that you're going to have to give up control of your life to Jesus. And what I mean by that is that you voluntarily need to submit every change God wants to make in your life. This is both a one-time act, something you do at the moment of salvation, and something that you do daily. The one-time act or, his decision, or decision is what I would call a canyon decision. It's the kind of decision that supersedes and precludes all the number of daily decisions in our lives. It's really the practical outworking of Jesus being Lord of our eyes. It kind of sounds like this. God, this day I lay down my will, and I give you my dreams, my ambitions, and my future, and I am choosing in advance before you tell me to seek your will over my own life and then do it. That you make that decision the moment you become a Christian and you make it day by day and hour by hour. Then on a day-to-day basis for the rest of your life, you start out each day that way. 
In order to grow, you must give up control. And I know that a lot of you think that you have, but I'm wondering if you actually really struggle with this. To give up control means on a practical level that you voluntarily submit, every, submit to every change that God wants to make in your life. Even if that means a relationship that you like falls apart. Even if that means that other people will not forgive you. Even if that means that you need to go through a difficult journey, you are willing to surrender control of your life. Let's try an exercise real quick to, uh, to, uh, to talk about this, to drive home this point. I want you to repeat after me. I am willing to voluntarily submit to any and every change God wants to make in my life. Ready, go. All right. My question to you is this. What is the first thing that comes to your mind that that statement threatens? I want you to think about that for a minute. What is the very first thing that enters your mind when you are told that you, when you promise you're going to voluntarily submit? Is it a habit? Is it a relationship that's not healthy for you? Is it an action you inwardly know is not right in God's eyes? Is it an area of control you have over your leisure time or your finances? I want you to take 10 seconds and just think about it. The first thing that comes to my mind that that statement threatens is what? Now I want you to to read that one more time. One, two, three. I am voluntarily going to submit every change to every change God wants to make in my life. You can't grow closer to Jesus if you're still calling the shots in your life. So you have to yield. The second thing that I'm going to tell you to do in, in that our role is you actually need to do what Jesus tells you to do. It's from Jesus himself in John chapter 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And even Jesus goes so far to say is that obeying God is actually a part of the great commission. Listen to what it says. It says, therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have taught you, or commanded to you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Notice very clearly that it doesn't say to teach them everything that I taught you. That's not discipleship. That's a part of discipleship. You can't obey Jesus if you don't know what he says. But part of the problem is, is that most discipleship models today in church are instructional, which isn't wrong. I have no problem with that. We should be doing that. But it's not the whole package. In fact, this is why I think we struggle with discipleship and we get spiritually fat 
is because we think it's instruction. We think that the organ for spiritual growth is the ear, and that's part of it, but it's also your muscles. It's action. You are to do everything. Part of discipleship in the Great Commission is to teach people and encourage people to obey everything like Jesus said. And part of this, is, I, don't, I think, is the reason we don't do discipleship well. It's nebulous. I've often found that discipleship in church is an area that where a lot of us want to grow, but the concept is a bit nebulous, complex, and diluted, and as a result, we don't do it well. While there are many effective ways to disciple someone, I would just say simply this. Discipleship is helping people follow through with whatever Jesus told them to do. So when I grow in my relationship with Jesus, when I'm asking you, hey, how's your walk with Jesus doing? And you tell me, good, I've spent 15 minutes with him today in devotionals. I'm glad that you did that, but that's not what I'm asking. What I am asking is, how are are you doing at following through with whatever God has told you to do? You got to obey him. You gotta follow him. That's that's not hard. It's not a hard concept. That's harder than simply teaching and repeating Jesus' teachings. We have to encourage each other to follow through with whatever God has been laying on our hearts. There is a danger in that, though, is that the danger is that it can become legalistic. And that is why, my friends, that growing closer to Jesus, we have to remind ourselves that growing closer to Jesus isn't something that we earned. It was given to us through no merit of our own. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 89 says this, it is, you have been, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this table this morning represents that. The day after Jesus ate, the the day before Jesus died, he had one last meal with his disciples. Then he would die on the cross the following day. His body would be broken and his blood would be spilled for our sins. And so what he does is the evening before, he has one last meal with him. And he takes both the bread and the juice, or the wine in that case, and asks them to drink and eat it as a way of remembering that salvation was through the cross and through the cross alone. And that's why we take time to have communion and manner. Oh, I'm going to actually ask that the servers make their way up on stage to help me with the communion, passing out the elements right now. And in manner, once a month we take a part of communion and we welcome visitors. And if you have accepted Jesus in your heart for the sacrifice of your sins, you can take part of communion. And, and, but as we, as we take part of communion, I'd, I'd encourage you to examine ourselves in our relationship with God and other people this morning. And if God brings you under conviction about anything, please let the elements pass by. 
We do this to remember that our salvation is not by our works, but by our faith. Matt, would you please open us up in prayer for communion? Lord, I ask that you would Lord, I ask that you would prepare our hearts as we observe the communion. We pray that we would examine ourselves and and make sure that we are right with you. Pray this in Jesus' name.